Um, it's really good to be here this morning, and we're continuing to look at uh, the gospel according to Mark. So if you want to turn to Mark chapter 11, and we're reading this morning, you'll find that on page 1016 in the Pew Bible. I was thinking actually on my way over this morning that this was maybe a little bit of a strange passage to be looking at uh, this morning and with lots of members coming in. It's not particularly about membership, um, but then it kind of struck me that in some ways it's very relevant. We're working our way through Mark's gospel. All of it's relevant, of course, um, but this morning we're thinking about what true faith looks like, what faith doesn't look like, and, and what it is. And, and so if you're here this morning and you're visiting and you don't yet know Jesus, you haven't yet professed faith, what we've been doing here this morning, can I invite you to turn with me to Mark 11, and we're going to think about what faith looks like, this faith that we've professed this morning. So Mark chapter 11, verse 16, this is God's word. The next day as they were leaving Bethany, Jesus was hungry. Seeing in the distance a fig tree and leaf, he went to find out if it had any fruit. When he reached it, he found nothing but leaves, because it was not the season for figs. Then he said to the tree, "Men, no one ever eat fruit from you again. And his disciples heard him say it. On reaching Jerusalem, Jesus entered the temple courts and began driving out those who were buying and selling there. He overturned the tables of the money changers and the benches of those selling doves and would not allow anyone to carry merchandise through the temple courts. And as he taught them, he said, Is it not written, My house will be called a house of prayer for all nations, but you have made it a den of robbers. The chief priests and the teachers of the law heard this and began looking for a way to kill him, for they feared him, because the whole crowd was amazed at his teaching. When evening came, Jesus and his disciples went out of the city. In the morning, as they went along, they saw the fig tree withered from its roots. Peter remembered and said to Jesus, Rabbi, look, the fig tree you cursed has withered. Have faith in God, Jesus answered. Truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself into the sea and does not doubt in their heart, but believes that what they say will happen, it will be done for them. Therefore I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you have received it and it will be yours. And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Amen. We thank God for his word. If you're a little bit older, you might remember the TV show, Keeping Up Appearances. And if you're much younger than me, you likely won't remember the show. And if you're in around my age, then you might have some recollection of the show, Keeping Up Appearances. And really, in, in the show, there's this main character, Hyacin, and she's trying to betray herself more highly than she really is. Uh, she thought of herself more highly than she actually is. And she's trying to betray herself to the people around her. She wanted the people to think that she was of much higher social class. And much of the, the, the content of the show portrays this conflict between who Hyacin thinks she is and what she's trying to portray herself to be and who she actually is in reality. And likewise, as we come to this passage this morning, in Jesus' day, he comes and he looks at God's people, and there's a conflict between who they think they are and what they're trying to portray themselves to be and who they really are. They're keeping up appearances. They're looking rather impressive and religious, but when you look closer, all is not well. 
And instead, Jesus warns them that judgment is coming unless they respond to Jesus' call to faith. And so the question this passage poses to us is, what does Jesus come and see? When he comes and sees and looks at us, what does he see? Because the first thing our passage teaches us is, my clicker's not, sorry. First thing that this passage teaches us is, Jesus condemns fruitless religion. Uh, Last week, we discovered that Jesus is kind and gentle and comforting. And at the beginning of Mark chapter 11, Jesus comes into Jerusalem and we see that he's a king who is is humble and lowly. Uh, But here we discover that Jesus condemns fruitless religion. And so yes, he's kind and lowly and gentle, but at the same time, he judges with authority. And in our passage, they arrive in Bethany and Jesus is hungry and in the distance, they see there's a fig tree and leaf. But it's no good because it's not the season for figs. Yet Jesus goes towards this tree because he's going to use this tree as a lesson for God's people. So he goes to see this tree to see if there's anything on it, but there's no fruit, there's just leaves. And in turn, he says to the tree, may no one ever eat from you again. The tree will not fulfill its purpose. Instead, it will wither and die. But what's this about? Is Jesus just really hungry and really angry and taking it out on this tree? Of course not. Uh, The fig tree was a standard symbol for Israel, for God's people. And the fact that this fig tree has beautiful leaves, but there's no fruit, it's a picture of what God's people were really like. It's a picture of what he sees in Jerusalem. The splendor of the temple and all of its busyness and activity, it hides the fact that Israel are not living faithfully before God. But when Jesus looks closer, he sees little evidence of life. There is no fruit. And in turn, this fig tree is is meant to be a lesson to God's people and later to the church, to us. It's meant to say to us, just because it looks good doesn't mean that we're necessarily living, living lives that please God. And therefore, what does Jesus see when he comes and he looks at us? Back then, Jesus walks towards Jerusalem, and and this is what he sees, an empty show of religion. He comes to the temple, and he's angered by what he sees. They're just keeping up appearances. They look religious, but he sees a temple that has been turned into a marketplace. And in turn, he, he drives out those buying and selling. He flips tables full of coins. He, he, he kicks over chairs. He makes sure that the trade is brought to a stop. But why is he so annoyed? Look with me at verse 17. Jesus, first of all, quotes Isaiah chapter 56, verse 7. My house shall be called a house of prayer for all nations. Here Jesus explains what the temple is supposed to be. It's meant to be a place where God's people come and they meet with the living God, where they come and worship him. It's meant to be a place of true worship and devotion for all nations. But instead it has become something else. Jesus says, quoting Jeremiah 7 verse 11, you have made it a den of robbers. According to Jesus, this is what the temple has become. But to understand more fully what Jesus means, we've got to remember the context of Jeremiah chapter 7, the the passage this quote is taken from. Because what was going on then, well, the context is God's people were 
stealing and killing. They were committing adultery and idolatry. They were living reckless lives, but they were still saying, we're safe. In other words, we're God's people. We can live how we want. We won't be judged. And therefore, when Jesus says, you've made it a den of robbers, his anger is primarily not about some dodgy money dealings in the temple, but actually it's primarily about Remembering the context of Jeremiah 7, it's primarily about this mismatch in their lives. You see, what happens in the temple, it doesn't pour over into their everyday lives. If you like, they have a church persona and a non-church persona. Uh, If you like, the, the temple is where they keep up appearance, but elsewhere their lives are a mess. But what does Jesus see when he looks at us? What does it look like when we leave here? Do we look like people that have encountered the living God? Because back then, in Jeremiah's day, they thought they were invincible, but God, through Jeremiah, reminded them that previously there was a place of worship that God abandoned because of their rebellious lives. And again in Jeremiah's day, the Babylonians would come and they would destroy the temple, and it was God's judgment. And so, Fast forward to Jesus' day when he's telling this story of the fig tree, when he's pointing to this this living act of parable, those listening were were to learn from history. And us today, as we hear Jesus' words, we're to learn from history. This is what happens to fruitless temples or churches. They become withered at the root. Isn't, Isn't that what we see in this passage? In verse 20, the story's picked up again, and in the morning they're passing the fig tree, and it's weathered away at its root. It's destroyed. And it's a picture of what happens to fruitless, lifeless religion. But maybe we think, Jesus sounds a little bit irrational here. Uh, or, or maybe we, we, we think, I prefer the, the Jesus that we heard about last week, the more comforting one instead of the the table-flipping Jesus in the temple. But actually, the truth is, Jesus is not irrational, and he won't, and yet at the same time, he won't tolerate a, a mismatch in how we behave on a Sunday and how we live the rest of the week. I wonder, have you ever watched the movie Saving Mr. Banks? It's been out a long time now, um, but I, I watched it recently, and uh, the movie is based on the development of the first uh, Murray Poppins movie. And uh, it portrays this conflict between P.L. Travers, who wrote Murray Poppins, and uh, Walt Disney, the producer. And they, they conflict. there's this conflict between them. P.L. Travers uh, is portrayed as this irrational and uh, emotional person. Uh, Walt Disney is just wanting to jazz up the story and and make it more flashy, but at every turn she opposes him. She's uh, portrayed as someone who's emotional and irrational. Uh, But actually, as I watched the the movie, I felt sorry for her because after all, it's her story, it's her characters, and it was her vision. And then towards the end of the movie, it actually transpires that P.L. Travers has based this story on her family. And so doesn't she have every right to be annoyed? It's her story, it's her characters, it's her vision, it's based on her family and they're trying to rewrite the story and move things around. And you know, in a similar way, 
we might think Jesus is a little bit irrational here, that he's flying off the handle, but actually, dead, fruitless religion is not part of Jesus' vision for the church. It's not part of his story, the story of his family. And therefore, Jesus is angered, and he condemns fruitless religion, and he has every right to do so. And then Jesus calls us to have faith. He firstly condemns fruitless religion, and then secondly, Jesus calls us to faith. In the next paragraph, in verses 21 to 25, uh, there seems to be various ideas. Faith that moves mountains, answered prayer, and the importance of forgiveness, but what holds it all together? Verse 22, Jesus says, have faith in God. Verse 23, Jesus talks about not doubting but believing. Verse 24 is again about praying and believing. Do you see what connects these various ideas? It's faith or, or believing. But with that in mind, we've also got to remember that Jesus responds with this teaching in response to Peter's alarm over the withered fig tree. And presumably, Peter is shocked, even alarmed. And it's likely that he's worked out what this parable teaches, that the temple's days are numbered, that judgment is coming. And what will that mean if the temple is brought down? Because after all, the temple is the place where God dwelled among his people. It's the place where God's people go to pray. It's the place where they go to offer sacrifices and receive forgiveness. And so what's going to happen now? Will they still be able to draw near to God? Will they be able to pray? Will they be able to receive forgiveness? And in a sense, Jesus says, yes, you can still pray and receive extraordinary answers. You can still draw near to God and be forgiven, but only if you believe. And this is actually, this is the turning point in the passage. Up until now, it's been doom and gloom, judgment and darkness. But with this beautiful light bursts into this passage, I don't know where I heard this. Uh, I've heard this a number of times in different places, but I don't know where I heard it first. But uh, often when you, when you go to, if you go to the jewelers and, and you're buying some, some diamonds, they'll place out a, a piece of black cloth and they'll put the diamonds on it and they'll shine really brightly and sparkle more brightly against the dark black cloth. And really, this passage is a little bit like that. There's this dark backdrop of judgment and darkness but the good news shines and bursts and sparkles far more brightly. And so let's look at it together. The headline is, verse 22, Jesus says, have faith in God. In contrast to leafy, fruitless religion, which looks good but lacks life, Jesus calls them to have faith. And then Jesus says, verse 23, truly I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go through yourself, into the sea, and does not doubt in their heart, but believes what they will say, it will be done for them. Therefore, I tell you, whatever you ask for in prayer, believe that you've received it, and it will be yours. At first, this might sound a little bit like a, a name it and claim it type religion. If you believe enough, whatever you ask for, that's, that'll be yours. But actually, John heard this promise firsthand, and later he tells us in 1 John, he says, if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. So it seems that whatever is, whatever is in according to God's will, and therefore a name it and claim it type religion is not what Jesus offers us here. Jesus is not saying in these verses, if you believe enough and you pray enough, good health, wealth, whatever it is you ask for, that will be yours. 
But if that's not what Jesus is saying, what is Jesus saying? Instead, I think Jesus is talking about believing and receiving and mountains that are thrown into the sea because he wants us to see we trust in a God of the impossible and therefore we can pray big prayers. But what sort of big prayers? What do I mean by that? Well, remember where we are in the passage. Judgment has been announced. And given so, who then can be saved? But actually, if you remember, that's a question we considered a a couple of weeks ago. The story of the rich man and Jesus' disciples come to Jesus afterwards and, and they ask, who then can be saved? And do you remember what Jesus said? With man, it is impossible, but not with God, for all things are possible. It's impossible to be saved, but we're to... But we're to trust in the God of the impossible, the one who can save us. And now in this passage, judgment is coming. And once again, in these verses, I think we're encouraged to trust in this same God. In the face of certain judgment, being saved looks impossible. But once again, in these verses, we're encouraged to trust God, the one who can move mountains, the one who for everything is possible. We're to pray to the God of the impossible who can save, and here's the assurance that he will answer our prayer. So don't you see, in these verses, Jesus shows us, yes, he comes to judge, but he comes to open up this new and better way to come and receive forgiveness. Instead of coming to a temple, we come to draw near to God. We can be forgiven simply by praying. We can come and pray prayers like the one we considered last week, that Bartimaeus prays at the end of chapter 10. Lord Jesus, have mercy on me, and the Lord will hear our prayers. Jesus calls us to have faith. But very briefly, do you notice in verse 25 what it says? And when you stand praying, if you hold anything against anyone, forgive them, so that your Father in heaven may forgive your sins. Do you see Jesus is reminding them what true faith looks like? It's it's consistent this leafy, fruitless religion is inconsistent. They're simply, simply keeping up religious appearance, but there's a mismatch in what they believe and in what they say and how they act. But Jesus reminds us, true faith is consistent. For instance, true faith receives forgiveness, and knowing how much we've been forgiven, we then forgive others. And as an aside, we don't have time this morning to go into all of this, but of course forgiveness is is not easy. Uh, It can be really difficult to forgive when people have hurt us really badly. It can take time, and it can certainly take a lot of prayer. But I think Jesus shows us here that there ought to be some consistency in our lives that, that we've been forgiven much, and therefore we should forgive much. And we don't have time to talk about this in more detail, but, but if you're, you're struggling in this area, I'd encourage you to talk to someone and, and pray with someone this morning. But for now, all I want us to see here is that Jesus includes this statement about forgiveness as he shows us the contrast between this leafy but fruitless religion that lacks substance. Because Jesus, for Jesus, true faith transforms our lives. True faith is about more than an appearance, but it affects and shapes all of our lives. 
But I wonder, what does Jesus see when he looks at us? I wonder, does he see a people desperately trying to keep up an appearance? What is it that Jesus sees when he looks at our lives? In preparation for uh, this morning, I, I, I was conscious of, of the difficulty of preaching a text like this. Uh, firstly, because you're afraid that, that everyone will go out the door thinking the, the new guy just is a bit serious and comes here and tells us we've all got dead, fruitless religion. And that's not what I'm saying this morning. And yet at the same time, this passage comes next in Mark's gospel, and it's here to cause us to self-examine, to ask ourselves, what does Jesus see in our lives? Is there any evidence of true fruit? Is there any evidence of joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness? gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control? Is there at least some evidence that we're increasingly formed into the likeness of Jesus? And that brings us, bring me to the second difficulty of preaching a text like this. If you're like me, sometimes self-examination can, can cause us to, to leave here feeling like hopeless hypocrites. And yet, I want to say this morning that just as we sang after we professed faith, that Jesus is the one who will hold us fast and there'll always be a mismatch in our lives between how we are on a Sunday and how we live the rest of, our, of the week. There'll always be a mismatch in, in what we say and what we believe and, and how we act and, and truly that won't be fully resolved until the day we meet our King face to face. And yet that's no excuse for us to say, well, live whatever way I want. No true faith seeks to honor the king who lived and died for us. And therefore, when Jesus comes and looks at us, what does he see? Does he see faith that prays big prayers dependent upon God asking for mercy, not dependent upon self, but asking for God to do the impossible and save broken and feeble people like us? Does he see true faith that prays for forgiveness, receives forgiveness, and therefore, as an overflow, forgives others? So often we can be tempted to just keep up appearance. We can look the part on the outside, but our hearts grow cold. But here Jesus is concerned with our hearts and he calls us to faith, true faith that transforms our lives. But I wonder, did you notice in verse 18, as Jesus challenges them, there's two responses there's the chief priests and the teachers of the law and they hear this and they begin to look for a way to kill Jesus for they feared him. There's the response of hatred. I don't want anything to do with Jesus. You're as good as dead to me. Or there's the response here in, in verse 18 of the others of the crowd that were amazed at his teaching. And so which is it? hatred towards Jesus, don't want anything to do with him, or that response of amazement at his teaching, but ultimately at who our king is. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, as we've studied your word, we're reminded that so often it makes us feel uncomfortable. It challenges our hearts it challenges how we live, it convicts us, and it makes us realize how broken and feeble we are and how small our love for you is. 
But Lord, we come and we confess our faith this morning and we confess and we trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who lived the perfect life we could never live and died a sinner's death but rose again victorious on our behalf. We trust on him. And so Lord, this morning as we leave here, may you make us more into the likeness of Jesus and may you help us to not be so self-dependent, but to trust more fully in the Lord Jesus Christ and what he has done on our behalf. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.